December 5, 1975. The aunt and uncle of a 19-year-old woman named Lindy Sue Beichler decided to pay her a visit at her apartment in Manor Township in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. They expect she'll be in high spirits, having just tied the knot, so they wanted the visitor to catch up and exchange recipes for dishes they've talked about recently. Something is wrong. The front door is open. When they step inside, they see blood on the other side of the door and all over the walls. A trail of blood on the carpet leads them to the living room. They find their niece slumped in a corner with a knife sticking out of her neck. The police later say there had been a significant struggle. She had fought bravely. The killer had used two knives to stab her 19 times in various parts of her body. His DNA was all over the place, although DNA profiling was yet to become a thing in murder investigations. It was obvious to the detectives that the attacker had been cut during the struggle. He'd even used one of the victim's towels, which was wrapped around the knife's handle protruding from her neck. This was not a crime committed with the greatest of care. It was a vicious attack by someone who'd gone completely wild. When DNA profiling was introduced to criminal investigations, you'd think it would have been easy enough to catch this killer, whose DNA was indeed plentifully dispersed. But when it was introduced in the 1980s, Beichler's killer remained at large. An extremely violent fiend was allowed to prowl the streets unpunished for his crimes. In fact, it took until 2022 for cops to finally get their man. It wasn't easy but a coffee cup helped a lot. We'll tell you in detail in a few minutes how a cup led to this man being sent to prison for the rest of his life, but first we want to tell you about another case, which might help you understand things better. This was the case that changed the landscape of criminal investigations. November 21, 1983 A 15-year-old girl named Linda Mann had just finished babysitting at a house in Narborough, Leicestershire, a small and peaceful village in the middle of England. Crime was a rarity for this village, never mind murders. So when Mann didn't return home that night, her parents didn't immediately think something awful had happened. They knew from the parents of the girl she'd been babysitting she'd taken a different route home that evening, a quieter one, so they spent the night searching that area. It wasn't until the next morning that she was found. Her dead body lay on a footpath aptly named the Black Pad. She'd been strangled. Police did have some biological forensic techniques back then, but nothing like we have today. All they knew about Mann's killer was that he had type A blood, and with an enzyme profile, they could narrow down the killer to about 10% of the male population. That was still a rather large net, even in a relatively small village in England. The killer remained at large. The parents waited and waited. Nothing. July 31, 1986 At 4.30pm, a girl named Dawn Ashworth left her friend's house in Enderby, Leicestershire, a village close to Narborough. She set off down a footpath known as Ten Pound Lane and was never seen alive again. Two days later, a person out for a walk saw what looked like a body covered in branches. She'd been strangled just like man, although it was obvious she'd put up quite the fight. The cops now knew that they were looking for a serial killer. The two crimes were almost identical and had happened within a matter of a few hundred yards from each other. This was shocking to the residents of the area, who'd never experienced anything like it. A local newspaper ran the headline, Killer in Our Midst, with the subheading, If we don't catch him, it could be your daughter next. Police talked with a 17-year-old kid named Richard Buckland. He knew man and he lived in Narborough. Maybe the police should have gone easy on him since he had learning difficulties, but they didn't. And after a few interrogations, Buckland had admitted that he had murdered Ashworth but not man. The cops thought he was lying. They thought that the two murders were almost certainly connected. Even so, it looked like young Buckland was going to spend a long time in prison. As all this was happening, a geneticist named Alec Jeffries was working at the nearby Leicester University. He'd been researching how illnesses are inherited through families, 
He was taking DNA from human cells and putting them on photographic film, after which he put them in a photographic developing tank. When they came out, on the film was a sequence of bars, the type of image you've likely seen before. Jeffries had a eureka moment, and his discovery changed the world. It would lead to millions of arrests. He was able to identify people by looking at their DNA sequence. He soon gave a talk on this, and the people in the crowd laughed. To most folks, it sounded ridiculous, as if they thought DNA sequencing couldn't be that easy. He published a paper and was quickly called up, but not to look at unsolved murders. He was asked to check if certain children were actually born to British citizens. The parents were trying to get them citizenship, and the government had been giving them a hard time about it. If what Jeffrey said was true, he'd know if the kids were the parents' biological offspring. Then he got a call from the police. They said, hi, we have a man in our cells who we believe killed two girls. He's admitted to one murder, but we want to see if he killed another person. Surely you can look at our swabs and determine if the biological evidence comes from the same guy. Jeffrey said, no problem, I'm on my way. He took samples from Buckland and did his thing. The police waited in anticipation of the results, only to find that Jeffrey said this kid is not your killer, but one man certainly killed those two girls. The cops, still thinking it had to be Buckland, started questioning if Jeffrey's technique really worked. Many people doubted him, so why not? Still, they sent out letters to men born between 1953 and 1970 in nearby areas. They told the men that they had to be tested at either a local school or a council office. 5,511 men did the tests in all, none were a match. This was big news all over the world. The Los Angeles Times wrote, Police investigating the murders of two teenage girls near this small Midlands village are applying new scientific techniques. Some predict it could be the most significant breakthrough in resolving serious crime since fingerprinting was invented. And the Times was right. Now we must introduce a man named Colin Pitchfork. He was 23 years old at the time of the first murder. He wasn't a loner or anything, he had a job, he had friends, he was apparently very good at decorating cakes. But his employer said he loved to flirt a bit too much, and women were often bothered by him. His name was on the sheet of people that had been tested, but the police didn't know that when it came to his turn, he'd gotten a buddy to test in his name. He'd gone as far as to put the other guy's photo on his passport. The guy that did the test for him told a bunch of friends when they were drinking at a pub, and as things tend to happen, the story got out. It got as far as a local cop who then told his senior officers and soon the two men were in police custody. That's when Pitchfork was tested. Not too long later, a detective asked Pitchfork why he'd killed one of the girls. He replied, Opportunity. She was there and I was there. Months later, he was handed a life sentence. Court-appointed psychiatrists said Pitchfork had a personality disorder of a psychopathic type accompanied by serious psychosexual pathology. They added that he will obviously continue to be an extremely dangerous individual while the psychopathy continues. As we said, this pretty much changed the world. Soon, DNA dragnets were implemented where men in the countries of UK, US, Canada, Australia, France, Germany, and the Netherlands were asked to give DNA samples. These countries now have millions of DNA samples in their databases. Experts also occasionally dig up bones to test just as they did with Nazi doctor of death Joseph Mengele. In the US, men are freed from death row with new DNA evidence. Such evidence has saved many people from being executed and many more are being released from prison today because their DNA has proven their innocence. Still, many innocent people remain behind bars. As Jeffrey said about Buckland, I have no doubt whatsoever that he would have been found guilty had it not been for DNA evidence. And now and again cops get their man with the help of coffee cups. This brings us back to the start and the murder of Lindy Sue Beichler. The cold case was reopened in 1997 and the DNA evidence was analyzed. It wasn't until the year 2000 that it went into the national database of DNA. 
It still took many years for anything to happen, but at one point, experts could say that the man who was her killer was likely from a small town in Italy called Gasparina. They only discovered this in 2018 when new DNA genealogy analysis techniques became available. They knew that about 2,300 people with Italian genetic ties lived in Lancaster County area around the time of the murder. As one investigator said, these restrictions further narrowed the scope of the subsequent research because there were very few individuals living in Lancaster at the time of the crime that were the right age, gender, and had the family tree consistent with these origins. One of the names on the list was David Sinopoli. They knew this man had once lived in the same apartment complex as Beichler, but that was hardly enough to put handcuffs on him. Still, he was the right age, and all his grandparents came from Gasparina. They knew that he'd worked for a long time at a commercial printing company. Through his social media profile, they also knew he was into hunting. He sometimes went to Italy to do that. Some very compelling evidence was the fact that in 2004, he was sentenced to a year of probation for invasion of privacy and disorderly conduct. He'd admitted to police that he'd spied on a woman who was at a tanning salon. 46 years after the murder, he lived in that same area. He was 68 years old, seemingly happily married to his second wife with whom he had one child. He'd had another two kids with his first wife. His profile didn't scream out murderous psychopath. Investigators wanted his DNA and decided a stealth mission was the best way to go about it. Police generally don't jump in with potential suspects when there's little to no evidence. Anyway, it's not hard to get someone's DNA profile, although as you'll soon see, this is a controversial subject. They followed Sinopoli around for a while. One day, he was about to board a flight with his wife and another couple from Terminal A at Philadelphia International Airport, and the police were waiting nearby. Just before he joined the line for boarding, he threw away a coffee cup he'd been drinking from. Police rushed in, took the cup from the trash. God knows what other folks in the airport thought about that. The last news reports we can find said that he was later picked up and charged with criminal homicide. There have been scores of people who were arrested after long periods of time once DNA genealogy analysis was used, but perhaps the most well-known case was that of the Golden State Killer Joseph James D'Angelo. Between 1974 and 1986, he killed at least 13 people and committed over 50 ghastly crimes against women as well as tons of burglaries. In 2016, investigators used DNA genealogy technology to build around 25 family trees for the person they believed was the killer. Soon, the police noticed D'Angelo's name was in those family trees. In 2018, investigators took swabs from his car's door handle and they later went through his trash and got a sample from some used tissue. Not long after, he was in the interrogation room telling the detectives, I did all those things, I destroyed all their lives, so now I've got to pay the price. As for the law about collecting DNA, that would depend on which country you live in. You'd think the police would need a warrant, but they would have to have compelling evidence to get one. It's not always easy, especially in the cold cases we've discussed today. There was an interesting case in the US related to a crime committed against a woman in 2006 in Maryland. Police interviewed around 20 suspects, all of the men volunteered to give a DNA sample, none were a match for the DNA found at the crime scene. One man refused to give a sample, although he volunteered to do an interview. His name was Glenn Rayner, and he was the victim's former classmate. He might have thought he got out of giving the DNA sample, but when he left the interview room, the police took swabs from the chair where his arm had rested. He was a match. This became a big case. Rayner's lawyers argued that the police had breached his genetic privacy, violating the Fourth Amendment. They lost. It was ruled that the cops had the right to take the sample, even without a warrant. Rights activists said this was a matter of concern, stating that people shed hundreds of thousands of skin and hair cells daily, and police should have some strong evidence before collecting them. If not, they believe we're ushering in a state of pervasive surveillance. 
The ACLU commenting on such behavior said in 2020, warrantless access to unavoidably shed DNA is a troubling trend in police investigations. In Gaynor's case, he might have gotten away with the crime had he done the interview dressed in a hazmat suit. Of course, he would have also had to refuse any cup of coffee the interviewers offered. Realistically, it doesn't matter what you do, the cops will get the DNA sample in the end. They'll have their family trees and they'll have whittled down suspects, and that's when they'll start their surveillance, following someone around everywhere they go, knowing they'll leave something behind. An invasion of privacy, perhaps, but it's also effective. In 2019, a man was arrested for serious crimes against women two decades after he committed them. The California resident had turned up in one of those family trees, and cops proceeded to surveil him. One day, he left a spoon behind after eating at Baskin Robbins. Soon after, he was in handcuffs. In 2019, a man from Minnesota named Jerry Westrom was eating a hot dog at a hockey game while being watched by detectives. He threw away the napkin he'd used to wipe his mouth, and the detectives repetitiously pulled it out of the trash. He was later charged with stabbing a woman to death in 1997. In court, his lawyer said somebody sick, pathological murdered her. Westrom isn't this guy. That's not how the jury saw it. He was convicted of first-degree premeditated murder and second-degree intentional murder. Another case we found involved a murder that took place in Florida in 1981. The woman had been strangled with a wire hanger. In 2018, some of the DNA evidence taken at the crime scene underwent genetic analysis. In one of those family trees, a name popped up. That was 58-year-old Joseph Mills. At the time of the murder, Mills worked at the Publix Dairy Warehouse. He also coached the Lakeland Volunteers football program. The night of the murder, he'd given a ride home to one of the young players who happened to be the victim's son. One day in 2019, they went through his garbage. They pulled out two cotton swabs and a plastic spoon. But the thing with the best sample was two adhesive patches for his colonostomy bags. If you didn't already know, those bags collect poop when people have various medical conditions. In 2022, the son and kid who Mills had coached said in court, I saw the crime scene, I saw what you did, and then you act like my friend. I rode in the car with you. His older brother said, I hate you. You can't die and burn in hell fast enough for me. It should be pretty obvious to you by now that if the police want your DNA, they'll get it with or without your permission. You are literally all over the place. You leave behind more waste than you could ever imagine. You're like a walking ball of fluff in a world made out of sticky tape. Does that mean the cops have the right to take part of you wherever they want it? This is the argument since we all know that the police can sometimes be blamed for overreach. Is nothing private anymore? Should the cops need a warrant to search your trash just as they would search your house? As you know, here at the Infographic Show, we don't tell you what's right or wrong, we just tell you the stories. So let's see what you have to say in the comments. Now you need to watch this very educational show, Degrees of Murder, What Do They Mean? Or see the terrifying future in the end of civilization century by century.